Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life is produced by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, a division of the University of North Dakota's College of Arts and Sciences. Visit us online at whyradioshow.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. On today's episode, we visit with James Otteson to discuss liberty and libertarianism. This episode was first broadcast in 2011, but it couldn't be more relevant than it is today. With the changing landscape of American politics and the new priorities of the Republican Party, the question of how big government should be is still very much at the center of our debates. It should also be mentioned that since we last broadcast this episode, Jim has moved his home institution. He is now the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics at the Mendoza College of Business at University of Notre Dame. Please visit whyradioshow.org for our archives, show notes, and to support the program. Click Donate on the upper right-hand corner to make your tax-deductible donation through the University of North Dakota's secure website. We exist solely on listener contributions. So I went to a bat mitzvah on Friday night, the Jewish ritual that welcomes a girl into religious adulthood, giving her full rights to participate in the prayer community and making her responsible for her own sins. This was a big deal for any community, but in Grand Forks, it's particularly meaningful because there's so few Jewish kids. In the 10 years that I've been here, I think I've witnessed three kids become bat or bar mitzvah. A larger congregation in a big city will see a dozen a year. During the ceremony, the celebrants choose and discuss a passage from the Hebrew scriptures that speaks to them. Maggie, the 13-year-old in question, talked about Leviticus 19.9, the commandment that farmers not reap the edges of their fields or pick up produce that gets dropped during the harvest. This is done for the poor. It's an early form of welfare, but it still holds a noticeable influence over our culture. My wife and I lived in California's Central Valley before we moved to Grand Forks. That's America's fruit basket. Our students there claimed there was a law making it legal for passerbys to pick fruit from the outermost rows of orchards. But there's no such law. It's an urban legend with roots in this very verse. Leviticus 19 is about tzedakah. That's the Hebrew word for justice. Tzedakah is different than charity because charity comes from the Latin term caritas, meaning Christian love, so a Jew cannot be said to practice this. For many Christian denominations, one is supposed to feel good as a result of charitable actions. One is also redeemed by them. But Jews practice tzedakah even when they don't like it when they don't benefit from it and when they're not in the mood. They do so because they're supposed to, end of the story. And even if they gripe, complain, or resent doing it, the action has the same value. In Judaism, one must obey the law simply because it's one's duty. Maggie's discussion resonated with me because of the reading I've been doing on libertarianism. It contrasted importantly with the notion of justice that we're going to talk about today one in which the law prohibits someone from doing harm but doesn't require that people give. Tzedakah demands that people care for those who need help, but libertarian justice insists only that people respect one another's boundaries. Societies built on these two different conceptions of justice will look and feel different. They will have different laws, and there'll be different attitudes about people, and they will offer different answers to a very important question. Do we think that government should force us to assist others, or should it only prohibit crimes? This is very much the debate American voters are immersed in today, and it seems that similar questions are being asked around the globe. The debate is about how we should treat one another. The libertarian will say that a more limited government still allows someone to be Jewish and to obey Leviticus if he or she desires, but that the government has no business mandating religious points of view because a society must also make room for Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, atheists, agnostics, hedonists, capitalists, Satanists, and any other ists you can think of. The libertarian claims that the best way to do this is to let morality be a private matter, a personal choice, and to maximize freedom in the society. It's a powerful argument with a long philosophical history. It's the justification for the separation of church and state. But the Jewish tradition, like many others, thinks this is incomplete because it makes freedom too narrow. It recognizes that no one can be free while they are starving, uneducated, or in desperate need. Negotiating this difference, choosing between what philosophers call negative and positive freedom, is one of the main goals of today's episode. Returning for a moment to the scriptures. Genesis reports that the very first question humanity asks of God is, am I my brother's keeper? We are still asking that question, and there appears to be no consensus. I know what I believe, but it's only my belief. Why should I force it on anyone else? What I know, however, is that how any of us answer this question reveals a great deal about who we are as individuals. It reveals our moral identity. 
the fact that this past Friday I got to watch a 13-year-old struggle with these questions was inspiring. She has a lifetime of moral inquiry ahead of her, but she models her vision of justice for all of us to consider. Maggie's task is our own. With that said, let's turn to our guest. James Otteson is a professor of philosophy and economics at Yeshiva University. Uh, he's the author of two books on Adam Smith, one on libertarian ethics, and the editor of several other works and edited collections. Jim, welcome to Why. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, Jack. So, Jim, we're discussing a really hot-button issue today, one that lies at the core of political debate in America right now. How do we know where politics ends and philosophy begins? What's the difference between the two? Uh, well, that's a good question. It's a tough question. Um, I guess what I would say is uh, there's no end to, where ph to philosophy, uh, but politics does have, should have an end. Um, I think that the role of politics should be able should be to create an arena in which we can relatively un, uh, without molestation pursue our visions of the good. Uh, that's really the classical liberal, as I call it, the classical liberal view of politics, that um, its job is not to create a vision of the good for you or to um, um, force you to follow any particular vision of the good, but it puts the onus on you to, un to come up with what the good life is, and it creates an arena. Um, of freedom and responsibility in which you can pursue it. So this this phrase that you use, uh, the good and pursuing the good and choosing the good, this is a long-standing right. phrase in philosophy. What does it mean and how much is attached to it? I think a lot is attached to it. Um, and it's, a, it's an intensely personal, but it's also a social notion. So the idea is that um, there is some purpose uh, for a person's life. Human beings are distinct, um, perhaps from most other animals, maybe all other animals, um, in having the ability to imagine what a good life is, to contrast various visions of what good lives might be, and to choose a course of action that can lead to one's conception of the good. Um, and because human beings have these capacities, realizing them also, so not just achieving the good, but part of it being the, pr the production of steps towards that good, um, creating the projects that fill out and lead to a good and fulfilling and happy life, these are of paramount importance for us. Um, and I think it's uh, part of being a human being to ask these sorts of questions, first of all, but also to make some uh, headway towards figuring out what it will be. When I'm at the end of my life and I look back, what are the things I'm going to want to have done? What are the things I'll be proud of or not so proud of? And if I work my way back to, from the end of my life to where I am now, um, what are the steps that I should take to get there? Um, and figuring that out is part of the experimental trial and error aspect of human life and um, relating that then to politics our job in politics is to enable people to do that to the best extent they can so the the ists that i mentioned earlier the the hedonists yes, quite a long and all list. that a very long list these are doctrines these are ideas these are theories that help us identify different possible goods do we need something like that to help us choose a good or are we free to make up our own as we go along? Well, I suppose if you, if you ask if we're free to make it up, um, meaning do we have the capacity to do so, uh, yes, I think so. But um, that, that's speaking in, a very, in very abstract terms. Uh, in, um, I think in practice what happens is people will survey the various conceptions or models of uh, good lives and bad lives that they see around them, um, and they'll tend to follow certain tracks that have been laid by people who came before them. That's the sense in which I meant earlier when I said that, um, that thinking about the good life is also a social aspect. Uh, it has a deeply social aspect, and that is um, th there, may be, there might be indefinitely many logically possible good lives um, or logically possible kinds of life, um, but people have come before us. We weren't born um, in a vacuum. Uh, there have been uh, histories and traditions that have come before us. People have worked out various ways of dealing with one another and associating with one another, relating with one another. So I think in practice what happens is we come into the world, we see the way that people are dealing with one another around us, and we see things that um, seem to work and other things that seem not to work, and we take the these isms you mentioned, um, these are, in a sense, competing, um, not always competing, but they're alternative ways of understanding how human beings should deal with one another. 
And I think part of the, um, the difficulty, but also the beauty of a human life, is that we have the ability to make choices um, and then also bear responsibility for the choices we make. So is libertarianism, and we'll try to figure out what that means in a second, but is libertarianism a conception of the good in the way that Judaism or Buddhism or hedonism is, or is it something that is above that, something that's, that's just a, a political organizational structure? Yes. Now, that's a very good question. It's a very important point. Um, I think that uh, the libertarian, although I don't, I don't usually call myself a libertarian, I think of my view as classical liberal, but we can figure out the differences about that in a second. But I think this is a political view. It's not, um, not necessarily a complete moral view. In other words, um, the, 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 main, the main time from which the tradition that I'm interested in dates is approximately the 18th century. Um, when you got people who started thinking that maybe politics wasn't really all there was to life, um, that the political structure shouldn't order and organize everything in life, um, it should make some space for people. And so um, politics gets declassed, as it were. It gets devalued a little bit. Um, it's not the end of life. It's just the beginning. It's just the, the referees who are going to um, call fouls, but you still have to go play. Um, and so in that sense, no, it's, n it's not um, a complete moral code like Judaism, for example. Judaism um, go and Christianity and many of these other isms you mentioned go way beyond um, the scope of the political uh, in the libertarian scheme. And when you say political, is that code for government or is it much more than that? Um, I mean uh, – Again, this will depend, I guess, in part on the ism you're interested in. But on the libertarian view, I think um, the political is – well, w w we can stipulate it. Um, we can say that um, when, we're, when we're thinking about um, the state um, or government, that's political. There's no question about that. Um, but when we're thinking about, say, helping neighbors who need help, um, there was a terrible uh, tornado that came through Tuscaloosa, Alabama, where I used to live. I lived there for many years. The devastation there is uh, it's, uh, it's catastrophic. So um, my heart goes out to them. Um, if there are any, anybody listening from that area, my heart goes out to you. Um, but if we're thinking about a coordinated or a attempt to help one another, so people in the local communities attempting to help one another in the wake of something like that, is that political? Not necessarily. There will be some of those isms who will want to say, well, this ought to be brought in within the compass of political action. Um, coordinated, centralized political action. But on the libertarian view, no, that's something um, that, that isn't political or doesn't, doesn't need to be political. That can be social. And the difference between political and social is an important one. Um, and it's um, celebrated in the, um, in the libertarian and classical liberal tradition. Okay. So what then is libertarianism? Uh, we hear the word all the time on the television now. Uh, and in the second half of the show, we'll talk more about how it's applied in, in American politics. But what is libertarianism and what's this phrase that you're using, classical liberal? Okay. The, um, so the contemporary conception of libertarianism is a view of limited government that's typically – so the question is how much government we should have. The libertarian today will say we should have only that much government that's consistent with protecting our rights. Um, so it's usually a rights-based political view, um, and the rights that it envisions we have are typically the rights um, to be unmolested, left alone. So you have the right to, as John Locke said in the Second Treatise of Government, um, life, you have a right to live. So um, the extent to which the government enters at that point is just to make sure that nobody kills you. You also have the right um, to liberty or to act and behave unmolested. Um, but for Locke in particular, you also have the right to private property, starting with your own body, your own person, and then also with the possessions you have justly acquired. So the state then, the job of the government is to protect you from infringements on your rights, in particular your life, your liberty, your property. That's the libertarian view. So the libertarian view is that um, the state's job is to, the government's job is to protect your life, your liberty, your property, but not go beyond that. Now, the, the classical liberal view is, overlaps quite a bit, um, but it tends to, take, to be somewhat more empirical and a little more pragmatic. Um, so Adam Smith, for example, who was one of the great founders of um, the liberal view, the classical liberal view, um, was not a rights-based theorist. He wasn't arguing that people had rights to this or rights to that. 
um, but rather I think his approach is better characterized as being an empirical one. Let's go look at the world and see what works. And in his view, as expressed in the Wealth of Nations, the famous book, The Wealth of Nations from 1776, um, his argument was that um, when you uh, when the government tends to interfere less in voluntary exchanges among human beings, when it allows people to trade with one another as they individually and severally see fit, um, when it allows people to come and go as they please without formal obstacles, without formal um, structures placed, keeping them, preventing them from doing so, or without substituting a third party's judgment um, in between voluntary contra uh, contracts, um, people tend to do better. So the classical liberal view is that um, people, the default position should be to allow people to have the liberty to lead their lives as they see fit. Um, it might not be an absolute injunction against state action. That's more of the libertarian view. There's, you know, the idea if you have rights, if you have a right to something, that's it. That's the end of the conversation. Um, the classical liberal view tends to be that um, the default position is to allow, to assume people are of sound mind and sound body, to assume that they um, have the liberty to behave and exchange and move and trade as they see fit. Um, and if someone wants to advocate for an interposition uh, into another adult's uh, or group of adults' lives, um, the, the burden of proof is on that person to show why, in this case, we should go against the default. Now, obviously, there's tons of stuff in what you just said. Uh, and in just a second, we'll talk about your notion of individuality and, and, and your call for responsibility that I think is very interesting. But in the process, you talked about property and the property we have in our own body. Right. This seems to a certain extent a bit odd in, in that it requires us to talk about our body as a thing that we control instead of as who we are. Right. And this leads, of course, to, among other things, the pro-choice movement that says, you know, a woman has uh, control over her own body and can make decisions uh, for her own body. Is it is it how human beings want or need – I'm not sure how to phrase it – to look at themselves? Does it objectify us to say we are our own property instead of saying we are who we are? We are uh, a subject. Rather than an object. Rather than an object. Yeah, um, I, th that's a good point. Um, and there may be some artificiality, not just artificiality, but a, um, maybe a kind of uh, corrosive artificiality of thinking about human beings as being property. Um, I guess unless um, one thinks of, um, uh, unless you re remind, uh, remind ourselves that uh, the property is ourselves, um, it belongs to us. I mean, I think the way to be fair to Locke, to John Locke, um, who was, by the way, one of the chief inspirations of the uh, Declaration of Independence and the founding of the United States, um, I think the way to think about that is that um, we, we each have a kind of equality of jurisdiction, meaning there's no reason, um, there's no prior reason, no reason from God or from nature or from any um, pre-social or pre-political um, source that any one of us should have a greater scope of jurisdiction than anybody else. And so the way to think about that is that if you think about um, what's the natural, the beginning natural scope of one's authority? Well, you begin over yourself. So there we don't have to call it your property. We can just say, I'm the authority over me. You're the authority over you. And everybody else has exactly the same scope of authority. Now, um, once human beings start interacting with one another and making arrangements and contracts and um, well then you can limit and curtail or you can push that the authority in various directions but the beginning point is equal jurisdiction over oneself and that fundamental insight um, that's really a profound um, i think it's a profound it's also an inspiring insight i mean we shouldn't lose sight also of the fact that um, that was one of the you know uh, the second treatise of government came out in 1690 um, and in 1690, there was an awful lot of slave trade going on in the world, including in the West, including in Britain, um, including in the Americas. And that notion of locks, that each human being um, has rightful authority beginning at least over himself, um, right away automatically means that any kind of slavery is immoral. It gives you the exact philosophical equipment you need, the, ma the machinery you need to render that immoral immediately. 
And, you know, in 1690, that was a rather radical claim to make, but it was also an inspiring one. And I think it has led to many of the um, really enormously beneficial institutions and moral insights that we enjoy and are the beneficiaries of today. So in a certain sense, using the language of property to define freedom helps us fight the notion of property that leads to slavery. Right. I, and I think those are very closely connected. Now, you know, 20th century um, libertarian or quasi-libertarian thinkers have seized on similar notions. So take Friedrich Hayek, for example, who's a Nobel laureate economist in the 20th century. Um, he argues that um, this idea of having private property, so property that's mine, something that's mine as opposed to yours, that I get to have a say over, um, that that's really an important bulwark against many of the more pernicious and seemingly enduring instincts in human society. So if you look past, look back over human history, what do you find? Well, you find um, a, a, a pretty sorry tale of, um, of confiscation and killing and slavery and taking over. And um, what Hayek argued was, if we had a kind of background cultural understanding, an agreed upon understanding that people had, um, uh, at least starting with themselves, but whatever else they had honestly acquired as well, um, ownership or authority over that, then you can't just take it from them. You can't take it from them or tell them what to do. Um, and that is a very important bulwark against these pernicious, um, as I say, these instincts that people seem to have where they want to push people around and take things from people. Um, and uh, as Hayek argued, although I'd be interested to hear what you think about this, Jack, um, as Hayek argued, the growing sense um, in the West especially, but not only in the West, of course, um, in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, that people actually should have, all people of all classes, from the highest social economic class down to the bottom, that they should all be understood as possessors of absolute authority over their realm, uh, whatever it is, however small or mean it should be. They still were absolute kings or queens over that. Um, that that coincided with, um, and maybe not just coincidentally, with a very rapid rise in freedom and prosperity that has marked the modern age. When we come back from break, we have a phone call and we're going to start addressing other questions, including questions about how far this freedom extends, whether it extends to drug use and prostitution, what it means for education, what it means for government in general. And I also want to spend a little more time talking about individuality and individual accountability. You're listening to Jack Russell Weinstein and Jim Otteson on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. We'll be back in just a moment. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life bridges the gap between academic philosophy and the general public. Its mission is to cultivate discussion between philosophy professionals and others who have an interest in the subject, regardless of experience or credentials. Visit us on the web at philosophyandpubliclife.org. The Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, because there is no ivory tower. You're back on Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I'm your host, Jack Russell Weinstein. We're talking to Jim Otteson from Yeshiva University uh, about libertarianism and the limits of government. You know, right before I came to the studio, I often – there's a coffee shop in Fargo that I'll sit down at and, and relax and go over my notes. And I went to use the restroom and there's a little hallway that leads to the restroom off the side of the coffee shop. And while I'm waiting, there's a young woman – who is crying in the hallway and she's looking at a phone and texting and do all that sort of things. And I sat there, I stood there and I thought, should I intervene? Should I ask her if she's okay? Should I, you know, should I, what should I do? And particularly being a college professor, she was college age, I'm conditioned to have sort of some responsibility for her. And eventually, I just tapped her on the shoulder, asked her if she was okay, asked if she needed help, and she said, I'm fine, sort of tersely, although she clearly wasn't. And you could have interpreted that in a bunch of different ways. On the one hand, I felt this moral need to see if she needed help. 
On the other hand, she could have sounded terse because she was upset or she could have sounded terse because I might have been violating her privacy and interfering with her space where she went into this hallway to cry. And the next step is if she did need help, which thankfully she didn't, would we have expected the government to step in and say, if I hadn't helped her, I was committing a crime? So this question of government and what we can force upon ourselves and other people is central to this discussion. It's also, I think, central to the question that we are going to be asked by Shannon in Oklahoma. Shannon, welcome to Why. Thank you. Yes, earlier you were discussing pursuing the good and individual accomplishments and I want to help people who are in need, and in Oklahoma, we're we're really big on that. Not that every other state isn't, but that that's really a dictate something we we spend a lot of time trying to do. My dilemma is, if the government dictates that I do these certain good things, does that take away my ability to accomplish individual goods? I'm not sure how to reconcile these two things. I mean, is it is it sufficient when I stand before my God someday? Can I say, well, the government made me do some good things? Shannon, this is a really interesting question because it goes to the long-standing philosophical debate as to whether or not moral acts are based on the intentions or based on the consequences, whether we have to do something completely voluntarily for it to count as good or whether any good act with good results or simply a good act in itself is to be rewarded or valued or celebrated. And so, Jim, let me ask you, is there a difference from the perspective of libertarianism uh, in, in in the acts that people do because the law requires and the acts that the people do because they're motivated from their own private worldview? Oh, yeah. I think that's a very important uh, distinction to make. It's a very good question to ask. I mean, the way I, what I would argue is that um, virtue, moral virtue, requires freedom in the following sense. Um, you can you can coerce or compel people to behave in good ways, meaning that they do things that have good consequences or beneficial consequences. That's good behavior, but it's not virtuous behavior. It's not virtuous behavior until they had unless they had the the choice to say no and voluntarily chose to do it. Um, that's a very important distinction to make. Um, I, if you'll indulge me for a second, Jack, um, I have to tell a story about when I went to high school. I uh, went to an all boys Catholic school. And um, sophomore year, Father Ray, who was teaching us religion, was trying to explain to us this notion of free will that, um, that God had given us. And uh, here's what he said. He said, well, you know, imagine that uh, you had the following power. You're walking down the sidewalk, and there's a beautiful woman walking towards you. In fact, she's the most beautiful woman you've ever seen. And imagine you had the power, but you just snap your fingers, you could make this woman fall madly in love with you. Um, now, of course, you have to remember that this was an all-boys high school. We were <laughs> right. sophomore 15. You know, we, we were very vividly imagining this. Um, and he said, now, um, now, what would be even greater than that power? Um, and, of course, you know, we were thinking things like, you know, two girls. You know, we were, we were, we were, <laughs> you were, 15, we were high school students. Yeah, right, yeah. we were high school students. <laughs> uh, but what Father Ray said, no, 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 not that stuff. He said, what would be even greater is if she fell in love with you of her own accord. And that is a powerful moral lesson, and I've kept it with me all these years. Um, and that's really, I think, the key to this kind of moral vision, that um, in my view, the classical liberal view makes the personal um, much more onerous. So charity becomes now a duty not of some distant third party. Somebody else needs to take care of it. It's my duty. I now have to do this. So um, on, the, on the classical liberal view, the, state, the state's job is this fairly limited one, this fairly almost anemic one, although it's, it's, it's powerful and rigorous in these few duties that it has. Um, the duties about charity and the duties about taking care of others really fall on our, sh on our own personal shoulders. So going back to this example you raised, Jack, um, um, you know, if we say, well, should the government uh, compel you or someone else to step in or um, should, the gov should agents of the government step in? I mean, one way to think about that is that um, is the question that Shannon raises, which is, um, if you're compelled to do it, are you equally morally? Um, is, is is this something that's morally praiseworthy? And, I, and my answer is no, um, because uh, acting under duress or compulsion 
I mean, it's not acting morally. It's just acting, as it were, prudentially or strategically. Um, but the other thing you have to keep in mind is that um, it's very difficult from a, a perspective of distance to know what needs to be done. See, this is more of, this is more of an empirical or a pragmatic consideration. We need a great deal of local knowledge to know what it is that needs to be done. There's no way that somebody in a distant, in Washington, D.C., could possibly know what this um, young woman in the hallway you were describing needs. You didn't even know, and you were right there on the scene. So very often, um, charity helping others, in order for it to actually constitute real help, not just sort of the idea of help, but actual help, requires people on the ground going and looking people in the eyes and figuring out what needs to be done. I, I find this, a, you know, some people will accuse uh, classical liberalism of being sort of um, um, less concerned about uh, charity in some way. I think it's exactly the opposite. It's actually a much more onerous and demanding view about moral, about personal moral commitments to others. And this leads to what you say in your book that part of what libertarianism uh, requires is that people have the responsibility to clean up their own messes. That when something <laughs> yes, right. is yeah. when they when when something goes wrong, uh, the person who makes the mistake has to fix it, not the government. Now that has larger ramifications. But let's let's take a step back and let's look at at, at a classic problem in moral theory that you address in your book that also sort of sets up what we want for the government and it's, it's, it's Peter Singer's pond case. And what, what it does initially is you're walking down the street, there's a, a little kid uh, stuck in a pond and is going to drown. When I tell my students this, I always say you're walking across campus, there's, there's a puddle, there's a newborn baby face down in the puddle and we all know that newborn babies can drown in, in, in two inches of water. And all you have to do is flip the baby over on its back and the baby lives and because I, I and Peter Singer tell the story, no one's going to expect you to raise the kid. No one's going to sue you, anything like that. The first question, the moral question is do we have a moral obligation to turn the baby over? But the more difficult question I think is does the government have the right to say we have to turn the baby over? And so how do you respond to this in your book and how do libertarians respond to the question, do we have an obligation to turn the baby over if by not doing it, the baby will die? Uh, well, the, the moral answer is easy. Yes, you do. Right. <laughs> um, so I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, so the, the, only, the only real question is um, wh what role should the state play in, in this? And I mean, for Singer, and I assume the way you um, use this example in your classes and many other people too uh, who use uh, this example, which is very famous, um, this is really um, uh, enigmatic. This is really an example that applies to many, many, many other cases. So this is um, one case that really draws on our intuitions because, of course, all, every, or almost everybody is going to say, yeah, of course, you have to help. Um, and so the question then becomes, well, um, if, uh, if suppose a person didn't help, what would the judgment of such a person be? We would all say such a person is immoral. Um, there's no question about that. And so the, it's a, it seems like it's a fairly small step to go from, well, everybody would re recognize that as being immoral, to why not enforce it? Um, and here I would draw a couple of distinctions. So um, I don't want to get too technical about the, um, about the argument. But um, one, th one reason that that example is so intuitively powerful is that there's absolutely no question about what needs to be done. I mean, I... I have in my own life. I've never come across a an infant face down in a puddle, um, and um, I point that out not just because uh, not to be flippant, but because if the government or any third party is going to start imposing, if we want to write into law um, requirements and po with, which might include punishments, if you don't um, engage in certain positive actions of beneficence or mercy or charity towards others. Um, Think about how we're actually going to do this in practice. Now, we can write a law at a very high level of, of abstractness and generality. Everyone should engage in all of those activities of mercy and charity that they should engage in. Well, that doesn't give us very much concrete guidance. Um, now, if you want to descend from that high level of abstraction all the way down to um, the details of the, of the particulars that would be required for this kind of a case, if you see an infant in a in two-inch puddle of water, etc., um, think of all of the steps that have to go from the abstract level to the to the particular level. What you get in in that long chain now you're going to have to have of detail um, and m many steps. Here's my suggestion.
that's going to require and assume all kinds of knowledge of information, circumstance, opportunity, location, etc., um, that no law is going to be able to capture. Um, so what that, what, at worst, what that could do is empower people um, in the state or in the government with an enormous amount of discretion to sort of pick winners and losers. You weren't charitable enough today. You weren't merciful enough today. You were merciful enough. That's, the res- that's a recipe for inquisitions and disaster. But on the other hand, the other thing that it does is it robs me of the, me as an individual now, of the opportunity to exercise my own moral judgment. I mean, let me give you just a, a, a very different kind of example that will seem very trivial. Um, so in New Jersey, there are crosswalks um, that are, by state law, um, you have to, uh, an automobile has to stop at a crosswalk if there's a person who's either in the crosswalk or who looks like they're going to be entering in the crosswalk. So it's a state law. And there are signs now at crosswalks and all over the communities in New Jersey saying it is a state law, you must stop. I think this is a terrible idea. Now, that might seem like a fairly trivial thing, but let me, let me tell you why. Um, because now what we've done is we've taken that tiny little issue of social graces. Instead of allowing people to stop for one another, to acknowledge one another, look each other in the eye, now what we've done is we've said, well, you have a legal right to this. And we've made ourselves, we no longer have the person-to-person relationship. Now what we have is a kind of legal, politicized relationship, even on something as seemingly everyday and trivial as crosswalks. So um, what I think that does is that can actually harden our moral sensibilities because we're not relating to one another on the basis of our social interactions anymore. Now it's as if the state is mandating our relationships to one another. We're not really people anymore. We're sort of legal entities. If you've ever had the misfortune, I hope you haven't, if you've ever had the misfortune of um, having to deal with another person in your community by means of the law, so by lawsuit or threats of lawsuit, those are terrible ways to deal with other human beings. They destroy human society. When, when lawsuits are filed against people, um, your neighbors, because water's running off somebody's backyard into somebody else's pool, instead of dealing with it one-on-one, go, having a conversation as neighbors, if we, go, if we try to use the, the machinery of the law to deal with that, that hardens people's attitudes. This destroys human community. So, I, so to come back to the question of Peter Singer, Should somebody help a baby? Of course, of course. There's no question about that. But the general principle, I think, should be human individuals should use their own moral power of judgment um, to motivate themselves to do what they should do. Don't rely on someone else telling you what to do, because then you might have the attitude, well, look, um, if there's no law requiring me to do it, then I guess I don't have to do it. That's not the attitude you want. We have an email from DJ Olson uh, asking about Good Samaritan laws and asking oh, yes. about the impact, what happens if the person you want to help uh, or that needs help is unconscious. And I think that's an extension of the conversation we're having. I, I wonder though if the choice is between forcing someone to turn over the baby and letting the baby live and – saying, well, yes, you risk losing the moral goodness of the act. As a parent, and I know you're a parent too, as a parent, I'd rather someone save my kid and not get the moral credit (laughs) than not save my kid and get the moral credit. So isn't part of the compulsion of the law and the crosswalks that you're talking about the fact that the price of people not being morally mature enough to deal with this properly is so high that the government has to create the crosswalks, has to do the signs, has to tell us to turn the baby over because the price, because the consequences are so extreme that, look, that person's not going to get moral credit, but the kid lives. Someone's not being hit by a car. Uh, an unconscious person is is saved. Yeah, no, I, I think it's largely a Hobson's choice. And what I mean by that is the following. First of all, uh, perfection is never going to be possible. So law or no law, bad things will happen in human life, not because of the political structure, but because human beings are flawed and failed. uh, uh, They're fallen human beings. So there will never be, there is no set of social structures, legal or otherwise, that will make sure that nobody ever gets hit by a car or that nobody ever drowns. Um, So the question really is, what do we do among the second best alternatives? So what's the best among the actually realizable um, alternatives? Um, And what what happens in practice is that people's moral judgment gets awakened. So what you see in 
I mean, we don't have to be sort of, um, uh, pardon the phrase, we don't have to be academics about this. Um, There are plenty of real-world examples where things like this have been tried, and we see what the results are. So, for example, there are places in Britain and Scandinavia where they've, they have gotten rid of all of the traffic lights, for example. You could imagine that. So in towns, even in intersections, they just totally eliminated all signage, all traffic lights, all um, priority. They've totally eliminated it. Now, what, ha- what would you expect would happen? And so uh, you know, from my own perspective, I mean, I think most people would say, well, there would just be chaos. You'd cars, trucks, people, baby. I mean, it would be chaos, carnage. Um, but what in fact happens? It, what in fact happens is that the natural spirit of human cooperation gets awakened. There's one town in Scandinavia in, in particular, for example, is a, ma- a major intersection in the little town where they got rid of all the traffic lights. They'd had many accidents bump, uh, fender, from fender benders to actual deaths in this intersection. They decided as an experiment to get rid of all the traffic lights, no signage whatsoever. Since then, this is several years ago now, since then they've had precisely zero deaths, zero accidents, if you can imagine. Because what happens is suddenly people start paying attention to one another in a way they didn't think they had to before. They look each other in the eye, they wave, they take turns. Now... Is it always going to be that way? Well, they're, I mean, so they've had a, a remarkable run. Um, w- would you imagine that at other places there would similarly be um, no, nothing bad would happen? No, of course not. Um, but what can happen, and this is what I think uh, requires a kind of um, optimistic view of, um, of human capacity uh, on the part of the classical liberal, people want to, be, people want to form society. They want to cooperate. Um, not all of them. There are always going to be the few bad apples. But giving people the opportunity allows people to behave. So to get back to the question, if you say, um, if the alternative is have the law and people live or don't have the law and people die, sure. But in, um, in actual human situations, it's nothing as stark like as that. Usually what happens is that um, people rush to fill vacuums. They fill up with their natural moral sensibilities. They fill up the world with their natural sociability. And when given the opportunity, they become moral caretakers of one another. So that should I be my brother's keeper, um, that natural instinct suddenly gets awakened to a, um, a much greater degree than, would, than is often the case when they think it's someone else's responsibility to take care of it, not mine. So what happens then in cases of drug legalization or prostitution legalization where these vices that people have worked so hard to control unsuccessfully uh, – become just permissible in the large scale. Are you suggesting, A, that these things be legalized, and B, are you suggesting that the legalization will result in either lesser or more responsible use? Um, I think certainly for a lot of it, it should be legalized. Uh, Prostitution um, among consenting adults, yes, I think it should be legalized. Um, would that lead to greater or lesser incidence of use? Um, I don't know. Um, I really don't. Um, but what I do think would happen, and similarly with uh, with drugs, um, but I'll, I'll tell you, here's what I do think would happen. Um, it would suddenly give me an opportunity to, um, to take my own moral convictions, whatever they are. They would give you an opportunity to take your moral convictions and put your money where your mouth is. Look, if you think prostitution is a vice... Um, if I think prostitution is a vice, meaning that people shouldn't engage in it, not whether it's legal or not, but but people, good human beings, shouldn't engage in prostitution. Let's suppose that that's our view. We'll just stipulate that for the sake of argument. That's our view. Um, well, now what we have is an opportunity and indeed an obligation to put our money where our mouth is. So let's go find, let's start some social power, put it to work. Let's start remonstrating and protesting and talking to people about it and going to the places where this activity goes on and doing something about it. See, right now it's very easy. Um, if, if these activities are illegal, it's very easy for me to say, oh, I don't like that or I don't like this, and that's the end of it. I don't have to give it another thought because all of the responsibility for actually trying to minimize this behavior or encourage or educate people to engage in other kinds of behavior that are better or that are moral or virtuous, that's all somebody else's responsibility. I think what this does, uh, what legalizing it does, it doesn't make it permissible in the moral sense. It makes it permissible in the legal sense, meaning, yeah, we recognize that you are a free moral agent. You have the ability, and we're going to, rec- we're going to um, appreciate and respect your ability to choose. But that doesn't mean I'm going to agree with you. 
that may well mean that it's my turn. It's my chance now to say to you, um, no, you're engaging in, um, in immoral activity and we need to talk about it. You quote in the book Kant and you say that, oh, yes. that uh, according to Kant, something either has a price or a dignity. That sounds oh, yes. related to what you're talking about now. Can you explain that and talk about how it encapsulates your point of view? Yes. Um, so Kant distinguishes between what he calls things and persons. A thing is something that has no moral agency of its own. It, uh, it doesn't devise pro So a screwdriver, for example, is a thing. You don't have to ask the screwdriver permission to use it to your ends, whatever those are. Um, on the other hand, there are these other creatures in the universe called persons, according to Kant. And persons are things, um, are, sorry, persons are creatures um, that have rational autonomy. That is that they have the capacity to understand that there are various courses of action they might take and they have the capacity to choose for themselves a course of action that they think comports with their vision of the good and with their own rational autonomy. What Kant means when he says that um, things, uh, they have a price or a dignity, what that means is that if you don't, if you are not a moral agent, then we can buy and sell you on the market. And when I say buy and sell you, I'm thinking of things like goods and services. Um, we don't need to ask the goods and services their permission. On the other hand, for you, as a moral agent, you have not a price but a dignity, and that is reflected in your ability to make, um, to construct for yourself a rational plan of life, and to choose the pl the steps that will that are required to get there, which includes in choosing the consequences of your actions, good and bad. Um, so, respecting a person's dignity as a moral agent for conduct, uh, what that means is I respect not only your freedom to choose but also your responsibility for your actions. I treat you as a, a person of dignity when I say, yes, you have freedom, and I'm going to respect that choice, but I'm also going to hold you accountable for it. That's really the ultimate respect we can pay to an, uh, a moral agent. And that's a perfect summation of the discussion, this balance between freedom and accountability, respect and responsibility. Jim Otteson, thank you so much for joining us on Why tonight. Thank you for having me. We will be back shortly for a wrap-up and a reconsideration of the conversation after this. Visit IPPL's blog, PQED, Philosophical Questions Every Day, for more philosophical discussions of everyday life. Comment on the entries and share your points of view with an ever-growing community of professional and amateur philosophers. You can access the blog and view more information on our schedule, our broadcasts, and the Y Radio Store at www.philosophyandpubliclife.org. You're back with Jack Russell Weinstein and Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life. I've been talking with Jim Otteson, author of Actual Ethics, a discussion of libertarian and classical liberal morality. And it's interesting that his title, the title of his book is Actual Ethics because it really does highlight this balance that he is trying to reach between the empirical and the conceptual or rather the theory and the way that people live and looking at what we have to designate as unchallengeable a person's dignity and what we have to recognize as the central analysis of, of, of whether or not government works and that's whether or not it works. And part of his concern is that the way that people designate structures are simply not functional in the way that people want them to be. I also found it really interesting that particularly in the first half of the talk, Despite the fact that we were talking about government structures, we discussed religion more than perhaps any other show that we've done except the one show on religion. And so in this neutral framework of private morality, we ended up having this deep connection with multiple religious traditions and getting a phone call from a listener who herself asked – what do I say when I stand before my God? This brings the question of law into focus and the question of what the consequences of law are. We often talk about the consequence of law being 
unfair practices or the consequences of law making us safe or the consequences of law giving us better or worse educations. But Jim argues that one of the consequences of law is taking away our responsibility, taking away our moral agency, not being able to cultivate that sense of who we are and how we pay attention to one another. He brought up that example of the road in Scandinavia where there were no signs, no streetlights, and how everyone noticed one another and where everyone had to take the individual responsibility to slow down, to watch for pedestrians, to care about other people. Would that work in New York City? I don't know. Would it work in Oklahoma? I don't know. In Grand Forks, I know that we have a lot of unprotected intersections where there are no stop signs, where there are no lights, and I find them terrifying. But at the same time, there are many fewer accidents there than they are than there are in the biggest and most regulated intersection of the state, which is Demers and South Washington, for those listeners who know the geography. All in all, what I was hoping with this show, and I think Jim did this very, very well, was to get a chance to talk about libertarianism and to talk about freedom and limited government in a calm, responsible way that runs counter to what's happening on television every day. There are people who claim to be libertarians who are running for higher office. Are they libertarians? I can't say. But what I can say is I have never seen them participate in a calm, rational, philosophical discussion about what their philosophy is, what its good and bad points are, and what we have to assume, accept, and understand in order to determine whether we agree with them or not. And with that, I thank you all for listening. Please tune again next month. You've been listening to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life, and happy Mother's Day. Why is funded by the Institute for Philosophy and Public Life, Prairie Public Broadcasting, the North Dakota Humanities Council, and the University of North Dakota College of Arts and Sciences. Skip Wood is our studio engineer. Wise music is written and performed by Mark Weinstein and can be found on his album Lua e Soul. For more of his music, visit jazzfluteweinstein.com or myspace.com slash markweinstein. Philosophy is everywhere you make it, and we hope we have inspired you with our discussion today. Remember, as we say at the Institute, there is no ivory tower. <laughs> <laughs>